Thanks for joining us on Born Curious, a new podcast from Harvard Radcliffe Institute. I'm your co-host, Ivalisa Strada. And I'm Heather Min. Well, here we are, our first episode of our first season. Super excited, <laughs> super curious, and super excited to welcome our guests and listeners to our podcast. Me too. Born Curious is brought to you by the relentlessly, insatiably inquisitive folks at Harvard Radcliffe Institute, one of the world's leading centers for interdisciplinary exploration. This season, we have an outstanding lineup of episodes as Heather and I talk with some of the fascinating people here at the Institute. And we'll mix it up a bit, meaning that most episodes will be a conversation with our guests. Other shows will feature highlights from some of the most interesting conversations that the Institute has hosted. We'll be exploring a range of topics, including talking about graphic novels, wounds, and language and thought. Yep, we'll also consider listening to whales, and we'll dig deep into the opioid crisis. With our first guest, Dr. Lisa Iazzoni, we'll be learning about mobility disabilities and the many challenges people with disabilities face. For 25 years, her research has focused on improving the lived experiences, healthcare quality, and health equity of adults with disability, particularly mobility disability. Dr. Iazzoni is the 2022 to 2023 Sally Starling Seaver Fellow here at the Radcliffe Institute, but she is not new to Harvard University. She earned an MD from Harvard Medical School and a master's in science from Harvard School of Public Health. So let's dive in, shall we? Thank you for sitting down with us. Thank you so much for having me. You have a very personal connection to your research. Would you care to talk a little bit about that, about your origin story? My origin story, okay. You have to first understand that I'm an old person, <laughs> okay. But when I was a young person, I started having these odd sensations in my body when I'd be jogging or just, you know, hanging out. And it took four years for them to be diagnosed as multiple sclerosis. So um, I was diagnosed officially in um, 1980 when I was 26 years old. And so I've had symptoms of MS now for 46 years. And I'm okay with getting old because it means I'm still here. <laughs> um, I um, started using a wheelchair in 1988 when I was 34. Um, and I now basically have no mobility whatsoever in my legs. Um, although the one thing that I can do is transfer, which allows me to um, be able to be fairly independent compared to people who cannot transfer. This really had an effect on how what you decided to do for work. Well, what other people decided I could do for work. <laughs> okay, so... Um, I had been um, a medical anthropology undergraduate. I took rocks for jocks as an undergraduate. <laughs> I hadn't been pre-med. Rocks for jocks, I have to say. I'm, I'm kind of curious. Were you a jock? Uh, no, that was what I was distinctly not. <laughs> Although I will emphasize that I actually was extremely appreciative of the fact I could walk when I could walk. You know, young people are invincible, right? They don't think about their legs moving underneath them. But I 
dead. I came to Boston in 1976 to study health policy at what was then called the Harvard School of Public Health. And when I was there, these wonderful doctors said, Lisa, why don't you think about going to medical school, which just give you so many more options. So I now had to go beyond rocks for jocks, you know, take all these pre-med courses, but I did. And um, I was able to, as I said, matriculate at Harvard Medical School in September of 1980. But that is when my MS symptoms came back with a vengeance. I could no longer ignore them. I would run into trees, park cars. You know, I had to pay attention to this. And it was 10 years before the Americans with Disabilities Act was passed. And it was a pretty brutal time also to have a disability in medical school. It was an era when people were actually private about their health. Um, you know, when I talk to students about this, I talk about the fact that it was even embarrassing for women to say that they had breast cancer. You know, there were no pink ribbons at that time. And so, um, you know, I won't go through all the details about what happened during medical school, but suffice it to say, that the administrators at Harvard decided in their infinite wisdom that they were not going to support my application for an internship or residency. And without that, I couldn't apply for an internship or residency. And so um, so I was not able to become a practicing physician. I have an MD after my name, but I've never practiced in, in my life. I want us to pause and applaud and note um, that you are a woman in medical school in the, you know, in the 80s. And that alone is is a challenge and a remarkable achievement. And, you know, the fact that you finished, even though you couldn't continue. Well, there, there were actually a lot more women in medical school by the early 1980s. And the late Carola Eisenberg, who was a dean of students when I was there um, and died at 100 fairly recently, I think, um, would knit in the classroom. And so there were a whole bunch of us women sitting in the amphitheater knitting. And so I made a lot of sweaters, you know, which, um, you know, not all of us knitted. But I was fortunate, though, in the following way that I did have the master's degree in health policy. And so I was able to go into health policy. And it turned out that 90, 1984, when I graduated, was kind of a banner time for major changes in how. Medicare was financed, how quality of care was thought about. So I was really able to kind of go into health policy and um, in an exciting period with wonderful colleagues and so really launched my career that way. And so it was interesting when I was in medical school, um, people often asked me whether I faced sexual gender discrimination. Trust me, disability, trumps gender every time. Mm. Um, and so I do not feel that I actually face gender discrimination, but obviously I did in terms of my disability. Mm. Yeah. So you recently gave your talk, um, your fellow's presentation at Radcliffe. How, how did you find that experience? I was so nervous about giving that talk. You know, I give talks all the time. As you can kind of tell, I can talk about disability until the cows literally <laughs> come home. Um, but this was going to be a new talk. It was also required me to think about the audience more. 
And I will be quite honest with you that it became clear to me pretty much immediately that I needed to give a little bit more context about disability mm-hmm. and the talk. I needed to give a little bit more kind of basic disability 101, you know, medical model, social model. And um, so I probably started writing the talk three times, the third. So the way that I finally um, uh, made sure that I had it ready was that my husband and I, during Indigenous Peoples Weekend, <laughs> drove to Canada. And that was a long drive. And I said, okay, I'm going to take a pad of paper and a pen. And by the end of this trip, I will have the talk mapped out. Mm-hmm. And so that just kind of forced me to do it. And once I had it kind of mapped out, it really flowed. I thought the question and answer call session was fantastic, actually. Oh. <laughs> and I love the Disability like, 101 section as well. Yeah. yeah. No, I was really happy to have the opportunity to do that. And I also, um, it gave me an opportunity because I knew that this was going out to a public audience to have the slides have more pictorial elements to them than I might ordinarily do at a medical grand rounds talk, for example. Um, And so that was really fun to do. It allowed me to do some research into like the Perkins School for the Blind, you know, that kind of thing. Um, So it was in retrospect, now that it's over, it was a great experience. <laughs> <laughs> During your talk, you um, mentioned the independent living philosophy a lot, but the independent living philosophy seems really integral to disability rights, the disability rights movement, and also to the success of the Community Medical Alliance that you're studying now. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if we could talk a little bit more about that philosophy, what it means for people with disabilities? Okay, sure. That's a great question. So I, of course, am going to go back a little bit in history. Um, Starting in the 19th century, um, physicians became the arbiters of who was a meritorious disabled person. And what I mean by that is who, because of disability, would merit things like welfare, subsistence, support, um, to be able to just get by. Um, there had been a uh, sense that people can fake disability for secondary gain. And so doctors became the arbiters because new things were being invented, like a stethoscope, like an x-ray, like an ophthalmoscope, you know. And so now all of a sudden doctors had the ability through putatively objective means to determine whether somebody really had the quote unquote, you know, disability that they purported to have. Um, The medical model very much located disability within individuals. People had disabilities because of trauma, because of disease, because of disorders. Um, The role of the person with a disability was to obey their doctor, to follow instructions that they were given, um, to try to find a cure or an effective treatment. And if they couldn't, they were expected to adjust to loss and the limitations that they had. Starting um, really with the, you know, millions of returning World War II veterans, um, who many of whom returned with significant injuries, there began to be an impetus for trying to figure out how to accommodate people with disability to participate actively in their community, like having a job, having a family, having a home. And um, 
that was really the springboard, although there were other things that I mentioned in my talk, for the disability um, rights movement that started in the 1960s. It originated in Berkeley, California. Um, it really did focus on the notion of independent living, um, but also a social model of disability, um, where disabilities were viewed as a result of a society that cannot accept or tolerate or support difference that people might get around differently, might communicate differently, might have different ways of thinking or emoting. Society wasn't accepting of that. And so um, so the notion was to change social thinking, to kind of change awareness of people about how people do things differently. And um, the independent living movement and social model of disability really viewed disability as a civil rights and social justice type of issue rather than, you know, accepting limitations and loss. Recently, uh, there was an article in the Boston Globe, as well as an article in the New York Times, in which your research has shown that um, practitioners of medicine, uh, physicians, uh, are rather disinclined to uh, provide care for people with disability. And I have to say, that was shocking to me. I had been working in healthcare disparities for people with disabilities since the late 1990s. Okay, um, looking at healthcare that people with disabilities received, specifically, my focus was on three different areas. One was primary care, another was cancer care, and another was reproductive health care. It's important to note that starting in 2000, the Healthy People Initiative, which the U.S. Public Health Service folks put together every 10 years to look at what priorities should be for public health in the coming decade, for the first time identified people with disabilities as experiencing healthcare disparities. And what was interesting about the way that they made a note of that was that they attributed that disparity to erroneous assumptions among healthcare professionals about the goals and expectations of people with disabilities, you know, wanting to have well-being, wanting to feel good, wanting to do what everybody else does. But in general, you know, people with disability are less likely to get routine screening services. They are um, also less likely to have their doctors recommend these services. So it's not just that they don't get them, it's that their doctors don't recommend them. And this is kind of a worldwide thing. But I'm also going to introduce a social determinant of health issue here as well. And that is that worldwide, transportation is hard for people with disabilities. These are just kind of worldwide things. And because of that, you also find sometimes late diagnoses. You also find that um, uh, physicians may not recommend the same level of treatment for people with disability as for other people. And one of the things that um, was especially kind of worrisome in some of the research that I did for that particular article, but that we also found in some of our research is that people with disabilities might have higher rates of cancers. 
And some of this can be explained by certain biological things that might be going on. But some of it can also be explained, for example, by people who are disabled early in childhood and got a lot of radiation exposures because they were given lots of x-rays. But it is certainly true that there are other countries around the world that have a different social compact with their citizens. And especially when we think of like the Netherlands is actually, for many of us in the disability community, it's one of the exemplars of accessibility. Um, and from, from decades ago, that they just decided that this was something that they needed to do, that there were members of their community who needed certain types of supports, and they felt it was the community's responsibility to provide that. So what are some examples of how they do that? Housing. A lot had to do with housing. And a lot had to do with within the housing. You know, are bathrooms accessible? I actually have visited Amsterdam and the Netherlands, and it was amazing. The only problem that I had was that the cyclists were riding <laughs> along so fast. You know, and I was terrified that, you know, I didn't know how to cross the street in my wheelchair. You know, mm -hmm. there are all these cyclists um, rolling along. But the bathrooms were amazing in the Netherlands compared to what we have here in the United States. So we'll just leave it there. <laughs> um, and so I, um, in 2016, decided, okay, I've been talking to people with disabilities enough. I need to start talking to doctors. And so I submitted a grant application to NIH to get funding to do a survey, a na nationwide survey of doctors. Wasn't funded the first time around, was funded the second time around. Um, but one of the things that is a best practice in survey research in designing a survey, because we had to design our own survey for this purpose, is to first do interviews um, with potential participants, the kind of people who you want to participate in your survey. And so that required interviews with doctors. And what was reported in the New York Times was from the, from the focus groups and interviews that were done before the survey. We had actually somewhat ironically already reported the survey results. So the survey results had been out there since February of 2021 was when we first reported the somewhat kind of terrifying result that 82.4% of doctors feel that people with disability have worse quality of life than other people. The time that this was being reported was when COVID was still very much in effect. You know, February of 2021, we were having a new surge um, and People with disabilities were terrified that if there weren't enough ICU beds, if there weren't enough ventilators, that they would be put to the back of the line for having access to those resources. And so another thing that the survey um, showed that we had already reported on was that only 42% of doctors feel strongly confident that they can provide equal quality of care to patients with disabilities as they do to other people. So would you want to go to a doctor who's not strongly confident that they can provide equal quality of care to you? And only 56% of doctors strongly welcome people with disabilities into their practice. 
There was another report that came out in January of 2022 about the lack of knowledge of doctors of the Americans with Disabilities Act, which again had passed in 1990, that I won't take the time to go into right now. But what was really kind of interesting to me is that those reports did get some press attention, some, but it was only when my colleague Tara Legoo had all the time, you know, for these couple of years since the interviews and focus groups had wanted to report on some of the just really kind of extraordinarily troubling and problematic statements that physicians had made, that when that paper that she brilliantly wrote and shepherded, you know, was the lead author on, came out, that people really suddenly picked up on it. You know, and so it was kind of an interesting lesson for me as a researcher that you can present numbers, but numbers are kind of a cool medium. But when you present stories and statements like that, they become a hot medium and they just pop. And trust me, they're still popping. <laughs> yeah. I, I, if I may follow up, yeah. Um, yeah. what are medical school students being taught? In the United States, not much. Um, and this is slowly beginning to change, not because of the medical school educators, but because of the students. Young people now, um, for many years, have gone to school with their peers who have disability. And so a lot of young people just treat it as kind of a normal thing to have people with disabilities in their midst. And a small number, you know, maybe only like two or 3% of medical students self-identify as having a disability. And that's very critical because there are many disabilities that are not apparent. Mm. Mental health disability, often hearing disability, even a vision disability at times. Certainly, um, you know, there are many disabilities that people may feel afraid because of ableist and discriminatory attitudes that they don't want to report that they have a disability. Um, and so there is some movement afoot to beginning to teach more about disability in medical schools, but it's really being driven by the students, which is a kind of interesting thing. However, it's still really so kind of worrisome that in their report early this year on the um, framework for equity for people with disabilities, the National Council on Disability called for requiring competencies specifically related to disability in both medical and other healthcare professional training. I wanted to ask, do you, is it possible that the number of people who experience disability is being underreported. You mentioned that there's a lack of information in uh, public health surveillance and me medical system um, records of the of about disability. That that's exactly right. That disability is not one of the. Um, categories of demographic variables um, that are routinely collected. Um, you know, like age is, you know, people don't dispute how you collect age very much, but there certainly is variation now in how you collect information on sex and gender, gender identity, and so on. Um, 
race and ethnicity, certainly there has been a lot of challenge in accurately collecting that, but there is a motivation to collect that because we've known for decades about disparities relating to race and ethnicity. But disability still has not made the cutoff. Um, and, and there are other categories like um, sexual orientation also is not routinely collected. And there are challenges to figuring out exactly what questions to ask for that because language is evolving and concepts are evolving. But it has been a really big problem because if you don't have the data, you don't have the cap capability of making policy or evaluating the impact of that policy that you do make on people with disabilities. And so it really is a big issue. Another issue is that the data that we do have, the data that indicates that about 67 million adult Americans have at least one disability comes from self-reports. And again, people may or may not feel comfortable mentioning or talking about the fact that they have a disability. So is this where the stories would come in then? Because obviously we need policy change. Right. Well, I think that stories give you the, these aha moments where you say, oh, now I get it. Now I understand. You know, so for example, um, one of the earliest women who I interviewed, you know, with my 300 plus um, people that I've interviewed with disability, said that her doctor never got her out of her wheelchair ever to do a pap test. Mm. And for those of you who are listening who don't need pap tests, trust me, you can't have one when you're sitting in a window. <laughs> it's just not physically possible. And so you have to be gotten out of your wheelchair to do the pap test. And this woman was in late middle age. Doctors assume that women with disabilities are not sexually active and therefore are not at risk of human papillomavirus, which causes most cervical cancers. And so they kind of, you know, kind of wipe their hands clean and say, you know, I don't need to bother to do a pap test on this woman because she can't possibly be exposed to human papillomavirus. And so when you hear stories like that, that for decades, somebody has never been just gotten out of their wheelchair. It just kind of sticks with you. Mm -hmm. Hey, the thing that kind of astonishes me is that they don't understand that in this very specific instance about getting somebody out of a wheelchair and onto an exam table, there are height adjustable tables, you know, just like you have a dentist chair that goes up and down when the dentist, you know, presses a pedal on the floor. There's the same thing for exam tables. Well, guess what? If you get a height adjustable exam table, it's a win-win-win because it's a win for the patient. It's a win for doctors who some are of shorter stature and some are of taller stature. And so the doctor can actually set the table to be ergonomically appropriate for the doctor to do the best physical exam. And number three, one of the professions with the highest rate of occupational injuries is assistance in a doctor's office or a hospital because of the back injuries that are caused by transferring patients. And so now you can avoid having those injuries or minimize the risk of having those injuries. 
And so it is just kind of astonishing that people haven't gotten it yet. Yeah. I want to ask about what this means in um, in the setting of one's home. So if someone has uh, a disability that keeps them at home, like many of the people who you're studying in your current project yes. um, with the Community Health Alliance. I live in a 1911 house that has a basement and three stories on top of it. Um, I can no longer walk. I am a privileged person. I have the money. I was able to install a ramp to my house that I defy you noticing that it's a ramp because, of course, we can't show that it's a disability equipment. It has to look pretty, right? And I am being ironic as I'm saying this, so people can't hear that in my <laughs> voice. Okay. Um, I'm able to put grab bars wherever I want them. I have chair lifts. You know, people ask me how many wheelchairs I have, and I actually would have to pause quite a while and count them because I have to have one on every floor of my house mm. because I can't walk, you know. And so, um, however, I'm, as I said, privileged. People with disabilities are worse off on social determinants of health. They're more likely to be poor, uneducated, unemployed. My home office is actually on the third floor of my house. I sit there and I feel like I'm surrounded by these 80-foot trees. But that's because I had the money to put in all these incredible stair lifts, and a lot of people don't. And so I remember interviewing people who um, would come home after a hospitalization, would be able to be gotten up to their bedroom floor of their house somehow, or somebody carrying them, but they wouldn't be able to leave because they couldn't get around without a wheelchair. And there was no lift device for them to be able to do that. So absolutely. And this is true also for other disabling conditions. For example, we all are now taught to have, you know, smoke detectors in our house. Well, if you can't hear, you have to have a light cue or another cue that would allow you to know um, when there is a risk of a fire in your house. And so for the people that... Um, that were members of the Community Medical Alliance, which I'm going to be researching as part of my fellowship. These were people with severe disability. Um, and let me just say that getting accessible housing is one of the leading problems for people with disability in the country right now. And it's because they're not available? Because it's not available. Part of it, again, depends on the part of the country where you live because we live in a place where there's older housing stock. And so it's very hard to renovate that housing stock. But architects, even where they're building new housing, don't necessarily like to put in quote unquote disability features because they might not be attractive. People don't want their house to look like a disabled person lives there. So. I remember in one of my first projects interviewing a woman who also had multiple sclerosis, and I tried to interview people in their homes if I could, so I could see for myself what it was like to kind of get around where they live. And I remember her very proudly pointing at her grab bar and saying that she really, that really doubled as a towel rack. So, you know, she could hide the fact it was a grab bar by covering it with a towel. You raised so many things that are still yet to, or are just <laughs> starting to be uh, 
spoken of. So uh, how, what are the priorities in your mind in terms of where the movement is right now? Uh, I know obviously you work in healthcare, uh, but um, could you speak about where that is in general? Well, um, there are centers for independent living around the country that part of their job is peer counseling and peer support, but also part of their job is advocacy. And so a lot of advocacy now is around housing, around making sure that when um, new housing developments are built, that there are accessible housing units within them, because frankly, part of that is the law. Um, you know, the Fair Housing Act and so on, there are certain legal requirements. I think that, you know, one of the things that I often say when I give my disability one-on-one talk is that disability occurs in every life across the lifespan, with very few exceptions. That is one of the reasons why it's just so kind of remarkable that um that we don't have more of an impetus for um, making sure that environments and policies and just attitudes of society are not ableist. I think that there's still so much work to do. And I'm really hoping that youth will take it forward, just like they're helping us with climate change. <laughs> you know, so we're going to dump a lot on their plate, you know, in terms of advocacy. But I think that um, that I feel very privileged, not only in what I've been able to do in my career, but also that people with disabilities have been willing to talk to me and share their stories with me, and that I've had the ability at times to be able to share those stories with other people, to be able to get the message out. How can all Americans be an ally in this? By looking at their Thanksgiving dinner table, if they eat Thanksgiving dinner and realize that there is probably somebody sitting at that table who has some sort of disability and thinking through, okay, what can I do to make that person's life better? You would sort of ask about my fellowship. Yeah, yeah. Which you're, well, I cannot tell you what a gift this is um, to get the fellowship. <laughs> I remember when I, somebody called me from the fellowship office um, to say that I had gotten it. And my response was, I promise not to hyperventilate. <laughs> I was just so excited, you know, to, to be accepted into the program. And I wasn't really sure what to expect other than that I would be in a very different environment. It's so beautiful here as well. And the other fellows, I learn so much every day. It just feels every day I come into the fellowship, I feel like I'm going to learn something that's going to change my way of thinking. <laughs> and so it's just been remarkable. And have you had any run-ins with your, with your fellow fellows that have really sparked your thinking or the way, you know, have, have made you look differently at what you're doing or... Well, the word run-in sounds like it would be a negative thing. <laughs> Everything so far has been truly positive. Well, thank you for helping to create a more informed citizenry so that, you know, we can start with knowledge and uh, awareness and then be fired up to do something about it. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for having me. 
The Born Curious podcast is brought to you by Harvard Radcliffe Institute. Thanks for joining us. You can find Born Curious wherever you listen to podcasts. And to learn more about Harvard Radcliffe Institute, visit radcliffe.harvard.edu.